Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Lori Barkman. Lori Barkman is a business transition Sherpa with her firm Small Dot Big. She advises business owners on having more or more valuable sellable businesses and as a partner with Stonehill Advisors, a mergers and acquisitions firm, she guides them through the complex pro- process of letting it go. Welcome, Lori. Now I said Thanks, Laura, Laura the first time. It's Lori, <laughs> so just keep smacking me. Uh, <laughs> I was just talking to a friend earlier on the way in. She called me and uh, her name's Laura. So for some reason, I've got you guys connected somehow. Um, thank you for being on the show today. I always like to start with kind of how did you get started in this? What got you into mergers and acquisitions? It's not a natural starting place for most people. So like- it's not a natural place. And for me, my origin story really goes back 20, 25 years being in business. And when I was a CEO and I was part of a company that was sold, to a Fortune 50, that's really what got me interested in this deal side. We were being acquired. It was clearly not a merger. Uh, the, the total transaction was a pretty sizable one. It had a billion dollars, uh, more than a billion dollar in enterprise value. So for, for me, who was part of the executive team, we knew this was a the biggest deal of our lives. We, we wanted to make it successful. And then we also knew it wasn't just about the transaction, it was about the transition and the integration. So going through that on the deal side, after I left, I was part of the, uh, I was part of the integration and, and eventually I left the company. And after that, I went into private equity and I was on the other side of the table for doing deals, this time doing investing and trying to assess what would be the right thing for our, our partners and investors. And I got exposed to exit planning through some networks of mine. I was I was with a law firm. I was running business development for a law firm. So I got to know some of the other folks in the ecosystem, lawyers, of course, wealth managers, accounting firms. And I was starting to learn more about exit planning and this age wave tsunami. And so that's how I got into M&A as I was spending time learning about exit planning, got certified from the Um, from the Exit Planning Institute, got certified on the Value Builder platform. And I can also share a little bit of backstory about the name of my firm, Small.Big. But that's how I got into M&A. Awesome. And you actually run a podcast too. So that, and, and it's on succession stories. So I was checking that out some and that's really cool. So uh, uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, let's just jump right in. What is like, what's on your mind right now? I mean, there, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on. You've had a lot of experience business owner with business owners uh, coming in, needing or wanting to sell their business. You know, what's like, what's the sticking point that you see that most of them have to overcome to get, get a successful exit? Transferability is the biggest I'm seeing right now. There are a lot of people who think their business is ready for a sale or they're thinking about it in two to five years. Age, way, age wise, they're probably in their late 50s. So they're thinking they want to retire in their early 60s. And they're giving themselves a two to five year time horizon, which is great. You know, more time on to, to work on this, the better. But in those situations, the clock is really ticking. 
because sometimes a little bluebird comes a knocking and maybe we're not really ready. I had a conversation yesterday, actually, with a business owner. The firm has transferability challenges. He was approached about a year ago. He was definitely not ready. And he regrets that. He wishes he was because it could have been a great opportunity to sell at that point. Um, because I'm just talking to him now, I'm realizing with him in doing a business assessment of what some of the biggest gaps are. What if he had done that assessment five, seven years ago? Maybe he could have done things really differently to help build the value. So I think that that's a, a key concern, Ron, when the business owner has given so much to this business, right? They've given up nights, weekends. They didn't go to the kids' baseball games. Maybe they've experienced a divorce. They've sort of been married to their job. And it's not only dissatisfying from a financial standpoint, but imagine the personal disappointment that someone might feel if ultimately they don't have a sellable business and they thought they did. Yeah, I get a lot of people that say, uh, hey, I'm thinking about selling my business. What's the first step? And I said, start planning three years ago, right? It's a, it, it, There's a process to it, especially uh, I keep raising the number of like revenue wise that I'm looking for. As far as a small business or what we, what we, you know, in the United States call a small business, right? Uh, and the reason I have to raise that is because most of the time the owner is a key player in the business and it's going to, it's just not transferable. They're either the lead sales guy or the lead do it all guy, right? And I don't want to buy myself another job. And a lot of acquisition entrepreneurs are like me. They're not looking for another job. They're looking for an investment and, um, you know, strategic investment at that. So let's talk a little bit about like the process that, you know, you walk somebody through and it's, you know, do any type of succession, even if it's, um, you know, preparing to hand that business to be controlled by another human being. We talk about this a lot on my podcast. It's called Succession Stories, as you mentioned. Right. And I speak with founders who are Gen 1 and I speak with multi-generational companies. I've talked to Generation 9 and 10, by the way, which is a great interview. I talked to a mother-son. That business was founded in 1760. So that's a little wow. bit of an anomaly. But nonetheless, one of the things that jumps out at me, if we just stick on the thread of family businesses for a second, there are the next generation leaders who are well-suited. And that's that's part of a legitimate process to put into, into place is the education and experience that's required to be a leader in that business one day. So there could be a disconnect in any one of those fronts. They might not have the skills. They might not have the desire. I've talked to folks who um, didn't want the, they didn't want the chair. They didn't want to be CEO. They didn't want to be part of the company. And then lo and behold, years later, they're running it and they're doing a fantastic job. So all kinds of stories about how people start, you know, from sweeping in the shop floor to really running, uh, you know, getting to know the sales environment and learning the business from the inside. There's a lot of good good stories out there about where it's really worked well. Of course, there are stories where it hasn't worked as well. So the common theme for success in succession, whether it's family or not, is to understand what the role is, what's needed, and just like anything, having a good mentor program doesn't have to be family mentoring family, and, and a lot of times it's best not to. Um, but sometimes the best mentors are family. And I, I do I do love those stories. I've had father-son talk on the show with me. And like I said, mother-son. I've had three siblings on the show talking about when their father died and what that transition was like. 
So the best transitions are well-planned. Sometimes we do find that there's death, divorce, you know, the five Ds, sometimes things happen that we don't control. So those are more contingency planning types of prep. But when we are more thoughtful about it and have time on our side to plan succession internally, that's great. Also external. That was my experience. I was hired from the outside and as part of a long-term succession plan. And I've also talked with some professionals on my show about hiring outside CEOs. There's a great example of a family that I'm friends with here uh, where I live in Pittsburgh, and they had a skip generation leader, meaning the generation wasn't ready. They were in their 20s and when their father's health started to decline, and they were not ready to assume the leadership role. So what the company did very, very effectively was they brought in someone from the outside to run the company. And part of his mission was to get the next generation ready. And then he retired. And it was a, a success story all around. Um, now those, those, uh, that generation's in their, in their young 50s. And so it's been quite a while. You know, there's a lot of ways to solve this problem. It doesn't necessarily be, you need to be that, you know, your uh, kid out there who's just turned 18 and he's out there, you know, trying to figure out what he wants in the world. Uh, there's brilliant ways to uh, still leave something to the next generation without having to do the uh, turnover control of something you just spent 30 or 40 years building, right? Absolutely. What is the old saying? So the one I keep running into is the third generation. And the old saying is the first generation, you know, builds it. The second generation maintains it. And the third generation destroys it. Is that, is that, is that like, there's something to that? <laughs> there, there is some myth out there. And I, and I think it has to do with the entrepreneurial spirit. So what I talk a lot about with, with companies that are multi-generational, call them mature businesses, is how do we, how do we bring them back to their entrepreneurial roots? And the innovations that Gen 1 or Gen 2, you know, had in place, um, sometimes Gen 3 needs that latitude to, to really look forward and look for sustainability for the future. Uh, a great example of this is Highlights Magazine, Gen 4 CEO right now running it. And he's looking out beyond, you know, he, he's saying this transcends him. This transcends who he is as a CEO. And he's a great leader. And he, what he's trying to put in place is how can this business, which is um, education for kids, live beyond, right? Whoever is the leader, whether it's family or not family. And it's so mission driven. It's such a great example. And they are putting in processes for innovation. One of the things that you didn't mention in my bio, so I'll just mention it, is I'm an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University here in Pittsburgh. And I teach a class called the Corporate Startup Lab um, with my colleagues. And it's a great class. We have, we have privately held companies and public companies who want to bring innovations to bear. Because you know, as we talk about growth, it's organic or you're acquiring. And so these are companies that are thinking about organic growth. And they're investing in either new technologies, new processes, new products or services. And how do you bring those to market? And I love that. I, this has been part of my career, being part of both startups, like venture-backed, as well as mature companies and having this corporate startup experience for how do we bring innovations to life in, in mature environments. So I think that's part of it, too, for as you talk about the next generation, what are they going to do differently? They get the baton. Now what? One of my favorites, the interviews that came on, he's a, a Rooney from the Rooney family, if you're familiar with the Steelers. And he wrote a book about his father and um, the story about the grandfather giving the, you know, the, the keys, if you will, uh, to the Steelers, to the, to the next generation. He basically said, here you go. Don't F it up. 
<laughs> right? So that's another common theme of the second gen and why they're risk averse is because the first gen built it and second gen's like, oh my God, now I've got the keys. I can't mess this up. And the third gen is now inheriting an environment where it's been more risk averse and they don't want to be the ones to take the risk. The other saying is um, spouting whale gets harpooned. There's something to the transition plan. Um, and I have another friend whose father, he passed away. He had a heart attack recently and I, uh, and I missed a guy, but uh, his father's still around, but the, the co- his father runs a tech company and would have, you know, it's second generation, his granddad or his, his, the father's dad, I guess you would say my, my friend's granddad had started it. Um, you know, the other guy's running it now and it would have been an opportunity for uh, my friend to run it. And he, I honestly, it's just a set teased him. I said, you, you developed a phobia of being bad in math because you didn't want to run dad's business. Right. And uh, he ended up being a, a crane operator, like, uh, like uh, at the top of sky rises and stuff. And, um, and uh, anyway, one, one day he went to sleep and had a heart attack in the middle of the night. But, um, you know, there's something to be said about, like, not all families, the kids want to take over the business. There's some pushback there, right? So uh, I like that generation skip thing you were talking. If the business is big enough to afford a CEO that can run it and then, you know, open up an opportunity for maybe a future generation or uh, at least just contribute to the family, that's, that's an, awesome, uh, an awesome approach. And it's also, I think, good to create options. That's what I like to talk about with clients. When we, I work from transition to transaction, right? So on the transitional side, I like to talk about options, especially if you have more time to work to generate those options and then prioritize and, and see them through. So let's say our first priority would be to transition to family. And that's what we want. Well, then we've got to actually uncover whether or not that's what they want. The other example from a related party standpoint might be the management team. The owner might think that they have a second in command, a 2IC, right? A 2IC person that they really rely on. And they might think that that person wants to buy into the business one day. They they might be right or they might not be right. And it's a gamble to not have that conversation. And not I also not take care of it contractually or with long-term incentives so that person stays with you. What if in your mind it's there, but it's not in their mind, and then they leave you? So I have come across those conversations lately where the intention is to have management team be part of the solution. The other example would be uh, in generating options, certainly strategic buyer, whether it's a competitor or, or someone that you haven't yet contemplated, or if it's a financial buyer and it's more of a private equity environment. And so why it's good to generate all these different options is to then understand what are the motivations of those different buyers, because they are different, especially if it's family. And on the family side, if your company is large enough, maybe you want to look at an ESOP. There's a lot of tax benefit, excuse me, tax benefits, and there's good reasons and there's and there's cons. It's not it's not a very clear option, but it's good to explore. And again, that's why I like to say, okay, let's talk about your goals business goals, professional, personal goals, and financial. Let's understand what your business is worth today from a market-based standpoint. And I do work with folks to establish that baseline as with valuation services. And then we do an assessment. It's a great starting point to kick off a relationship because you, you mentioned it earlier, people wonder, well, what's the next step? How do, what do I need to do? Well, let's baseline where you are. Again, let's talk about your goals. Let's understand from the business standpoint 
What are the risks? What is it facing? The hidden pitfalls you might not be aware of. What are some of those golden nuggets that you have in your possession you might not even realize? I just had a kickoff call yesterday with a client, a new client um, that's looking to sell his company. And we we really talked about assets. And when at, we think about assets, we think about the tangible things. What about all the intangible things? The SOPs, the brand identity, certainly the customer database. What is it when someone buys you, they are going to get? If you look at it that way, put yourself in their shoes. We're going to look at not only what assets you have to transfer, whether they're tangible or intangible, but we're also going to contemplate how transferable those are. And that all goes into this assessment of where do we have risk? Where do we have some value that we can try to build up even more? So if time's on your side, you have time, you have no SOPs, but you can create them. You can create a more scalable business. You can create a business that has recurring revenue model on it. All kinds of reasons why your business could become more valuable. And how does it become more valuable without you in it? It's sort of hard to get your head around, but that's the reality. Is a, a business that can't survive without its owner is not worth much. You know, I was talking to a guy who was... Uh looking to buy a business and he he, he he was telling me about his deal bust and i was like why did it bust he says nobody in the company knows how to do anything but the owner i was like what do you mean he said well it's a machine shop and every employee that comes in the the owner goes out and trains them on how to do it it's not documented like but even not even the measurements and stuff he just comes out writes everything down on a notepad shows them how to do it two or three times and then he he, he quality controls their parts for the first five or ten they do and they spot checks them and I was like, he does that for every single new employee. He knows how to make the owner knows how to make everything in the factory, and uh, and the guy is trying to sell his business now. And I was like, okay, what are you going to do to to get around that? He says, I just can't buy it. I, I the guy just doesn't understand that, you know, that doesn't transfer. Uh, he thinks he can sell it to a competitor that knows how to make the parts, but I I don't even think he's going to have a strategic buyer that's willing to do that. And maybe to buy his customer list. Right. And manufacture the stuff on their own basis. But he's going to have a rough time. So uh, there, there is that there's a lot of, of business owners out there uh, to that either knowingly have everything in their head or sometimes unknowingly have a bunch of stuff in their head that, you know, they think everybody knows, but they, they seem to ask the owner on how to do things. Yeah, we call that the hub and spoke problem where they're, they're some they're the chief problem solver and they feel it feels good. They feel important. They feel needed. Um this is their identity. They want to be wrapped up in the business. They, they know their customers, birthdays, kids, you know, dogs, names. It feels great to have those relationships. But as you pointed out, if they're the chief rainmaker, if they're the chief problem solver, they have a hub and spoke problem. They have, an, they have what we call also the owner's trap where right. they can't take a vacation. They can't, they can't have a sick day. You know, the, the wheels of business will stop if they're not part of it. And that inherently is more risk for a buyer. It's not as transferable. It will have less value. That's a uh, that's an indicator for me. One of the things I ask uh, when I'm building rapport and stuff is, when's the last time the owner took a vacation over three weeks? You know, three weeks or more. And if they say never, then I just I don't say anything about it at that point. I just make notes that I got I got to look into whether or not you know it can operate without them. But it's a good indicator if the owner, you know, I have one owner that goes, yeah, I take December off every year. I was like, well, was that just a really slow month? They go, no, my, my team's got everything. I just, I take it off and I travel. I found my wife has family in, a, in another country. We go there for the December. And uh, it's like, that's what I'm looking for. Right? That's what a lot of business buyers are looking for is the company will run without you. 
you know, you like me in there. Yes, great. You do a good job managing it. But when you're gone, he's like, you know, some months I get, I get back and they did better without me. And that's, that's what you want, right? Right. So how does, how does that all translate to value, right? Because I know I still look at them when there's flaws and there, you know, owners involved and stuff, but the price starts coming way down. You know, it, it, it's, you know, the work goes up, the price goes down. If the, work, you know, the more of a job it is for the acquirer to keep it running and make it run right, the longer the owner has to stay in some type of earnout or transition plan, and the, the it impacts the price, right? It just it increases risk. Anything that increases risk decreases price. So, uh, what's your advice, or what is your feeling on on that? Well, absolutely, we need to be we need to be honest with ourselves about what we think the business is is going to sell for coming up with that range from the market standpoint is important. And that number can go up or down based on some of the factors we've talked about. So a big reason why businesses don't sell is that a business owner has an inflated sense of, of what it's worth or what it will go for. And they're disappointed when the offers are coming in much lower. And so how do we help that? Well, again, if we have the time to work through some of these challenges that's a good thing. Um, there's one client I have who has a business who um, his team has been so loyal and has stayed with him for so many years, but now they're all roughly in the same age group looking at their next phase, which for them may be retirement. So not only do we have the transferability where the owner has been so tied in, but his team may not carry forward. And that comes back to some of these main underlying issues where the business is at risk, not only because of the owner, but also because there's not a team to carry it, you know? And so for that solution, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I think with more time, things could have been different. If we don't have time to make changes, then unfortunately we're dealt the cards that we have and we have to deal with that. And we can try to get creative um, in coming up with some incentive plans and, but there's a cost to those things and um, people's health might be an issue. We can't control that. So it, you're asking a really challenging question because obviously the answer is it depends, you know, what can we do? I need to understand a little bit more about each scenario. Each scenario is going to be a little bit different. We're talking about snowflakes. Every business is different and the risks they face, the benefits of um, why would someone want to buy this business? You know, what are the benefits they're going to get from that, future stream of cash flow, the know-how, the acquire strategy, the carabouts on the other side of the table, that's what really makes a deal happen. They might overlook some of these things. So let's just make up a scenario. Let's say that there's a private equity group who has a pretty good management structure. They want to, they're going to provide the back office. They've got a sales approach. They've got the accounting lined up. Well, if our business doesn't have strength in those areas on the admin, we're losing someone or we're just not doing it as efficiently, then that's okay, right? That's going to be an okay scenario because the, the, the new owner is going to fill those gaps. So that's back to the point of creating options. If we can explore different scenarios with buyers, really understand what they care about and can we find the best fit, then maybe we're going to help protect some of the, the risk downside. Yeah, I actually uh, recently, uh, probably, I guess I say recently, my time frame kind of collapsed here. About six months ago, I, I seen a, a business that I was interested in. They reached out to me. But when I go to their website, you know, the owner's wanting to retire. And uh, they had about eight executives and only one of them was under 70. 
right? And I was like, the entire workforce needs to retire in the next probably three or four years. Like they're all waiting. To, I, what normally, and, and I had to ask him, I said, what happens when you retire? A lot of the guys I honestly think are staying there because of loyalty to you. And I said, I'll have to talk to him at some point. And he, he named off three of them right away that said they're going to retire within weeks of him. Right. I was like, OK, the other four probably just haven't told you that. So when they talk to me, they're going to tell me, you know, so I lose interest quickly because I don't, you know, like I said, I don't want to buy myself another job. And I don't think I can replace five execs of a, you know, a, of a equipment manufacturing company you know, and, and do it right. Right. That's going to have to be a strategic purchase. Somebody who's already in the space already has that just needs the customers, needs the, you know, the product name and the brand. And that's what I told him. I said, uh, you know, if you're, if you're all of you guys are really going to retire before you, you know, name your successors, train them and get them performing, <laughs> you know, then you're, you're left selling to a competitor that wants your brand, your, you know, your customer list and your parts, you know, so. One of the things we mentioned about, you know, earlier was, you know, the primary drivers to revenue and uh, what kind of, what kind of things reduce value. We're talking about it a little bit now, but if a, if a business owner wants to, to hit their number and, um, you know, they've got a number in mind or whatever, they're trying to maximize value for either for themselves or for their, their family. What, what, what is, goes into that equation? I know it varies, but just from your perspective, what's the, what's the ways they can impact that? Well, if we're using EBITDA as the measurement, then let's use that because it tends to be the best apples to apples number. If we don't have EBITDA in some businesses, what we're doing is we're creating a normalized income statement and we're then um, using a different number, which is seller discretionary earnings. And I think that that's one lens to take on the financials because what I see is that there are different multiples applied on an SDE number versus a EBITDA number. If we are in a business with a high percentage of recurring revenue, then perhaps that business will be valued on top line revenue, a multiple of top line. So the first thing is, especially if you're talking to your buddies on the golf course and they say, oh yeah, I sold my company for, for five times. And you're like, well, five times what, right? That's really the thing to know the math is five times what? Was it SDE? Was it EBITDA? Was it revenue? So that's kind of the inside baseball on, you know, what's the math and how we get there is we lay out on multiple years of financial. So let's say three years is typical. We can do more if you've had a couple of down years because of COVID. Um, for some businesses, it's been the opposite. They've been thriving. So nonetheless, we'll take three years or so and we'll lay that out and we look at your income statement and then we, we take a look at things that we call uh, addbacks. So from an expense standpoint, if you've had one-time expenses for the business that really aren't recurring, that the new owner wouldn't incur, that would go on the list. If you've had business um, expenses that, again, they're business expenses, that it, but then you might also have had personal expenses running through the business. Those are choices business owners can make. It's good to really be clear and track those so that when we're doing this type of analysis, it's easy to calculate um, what those are, because we need to take those out. The new owner isn't going to make those same decisions. Same as interest payments, they might make different decisions about loans that you've taken out. They'll make different decisions on, on different expense categories, depreciation, et cetera. So what we do is we take those out. Also things like PPP and EIDL, um, tax rebates that you may have gotten, we can't count on that for the future. So we need to take those out. 
and add them back, et cetera. You know, so that's kind of the math as we're doing some back and forth here. And that's how we calculate SDE. So what I do when I look at a business um, from a market-based standpoint, I look at comps, just like when you're selling your house, you're going to look at other houses that have sold in your area, similar size, similar geography. But of course, we all know if you've Mac daddied out your basement or your, you know, your master bedroom suite and your neighbor didn't, well, you might sell for more. And that's the same thing with this type of analysis is we're not only looking at the market comps to understand general multiples, but we're then trying to assess, well, for this business, what might be reasons to kind of punch above your weight class? Why might you generate a premium? So if typically what I see is a range of value. Well, what's going to get us in closer to the top of the range? And so there are eight core drivers of that. We can talk about eight or I can pick a few, but those are the, some of the, some of those things are absolutely tied to the financials, the size of the business, the profitability, the cleanliness of the books, the reliability of the numbers, that type of thing. But then uh, also what industry you're in, what growth, what growth prospects you have. If you've maxed out on your market share and you really can't grow more, what's the new owner? How are they going to benefit from taking over your business? Well, how should they think about the growth prospects? And then there's others like recurring revenue, like what we call a Switzerland structure, which is not, not too reliant from a risk standpoint and any one vendor, any one customer from a customer concentration standpoint, or any one employee, which by the way, could be you. So that could be a problem. So that's just some of the, some of the drivers we look at. We certainly could talk about more. Yeah, I actually, uh, one of the things I stumbled across was uh, there was a, um, a manufacturing plant and they had all the equipment was sold. And any day, any day that the mechanic, they had an on-site uh, guy who could fix anything. If he was sick for a few days, sometimes the plant came to a screeching halt because you would look at their production. They showed me production cycles. And I was like, hey, why is there a, like a law here? Oh, uh, this piece of equipment called, you know, went down and and uh, our, our maintenance guy was on vacation, right? So that, I, I like the part you said about key employee. It doesn't have to be the owner. If you've got one guy where things come to a screeching halt, if he's not there, probably not a, a good idea. Or at least you know, have, you know, start thinking about how to have a backup to that guy. So uh, you know, let's let's jump into the. You talked. You, you mentioned there was eight points to go to the evaluation. What are? Can you just rattle off a few of those? Because I'm sure yeah. I know them, yeah, but sure. somebody might not. Yeah, sure. So the first one is the financial performance. And the strength of the of the numbers, the size of the business, there is a small business discount, what we call it. If a business is under a million, uh, that's certainly going to have a higher risk profile than a company under 5 million, under 10 million, et cetera. And so the size does matter, you know, when people ask that question. And that's the reason why, because of all the things that we've talked about, that a smaller business is going to presume to be more tied in with its owner. And so financial performance is everything we were just saying, too, about their, our EBITDA and how that compares in the industry with some of our um, what some of our key metrics look like. The, the next one is the growth potential. Have we maxed out on market share? Do we have room to grow? Is there field left to plow? If you're targeting, here's one example. If you're targeting Fortune 500 companies and you have 498 of them, that's fantastic, <laughs> right? But- Where's the growth potential? There's only two more to go get. So growth is, is a good part of that and being able to tell that story and share that story. Um, the third one is we look at cash flow. We call it the valuation teeter-totter. Is your cash, you know, is it cash spigot? Do you have to keep borrowing line of credit? You, you know, working capital challenges. What can we do to um, improve your, improve your um, working capital needs? 
there's there's different things that we can look at there. Um, the next category is what I call the Switzerland structure, which is this risk profile. Are we too concentrated in one particular area? One example on the vendor side that we might not think about is all of our, our contracts. If you're a value-added reseller, are those contracts transferable? If we gather up all the assets and we say, what are what's valuable? What am I actually selling here? If you've taken years to become certified in something, that's awesome. That's great. That's part of your value add. That's part of the barriers to entry you've created. How transferable are those agreements? And it's good to know if they're not transferable, right? And what can we do to mitigate that risk? That's just one example. Another example might be if you've built your uh, online store and you're really reliant on Facebook and now Facebook has changed its policies and we all know the the rift between Apple and Facebook. Wow, that really hurt Facebook's stock, right? So what if you've been all in on, on Facebook for your third-party selling or you're really reliant on Amazon and Amazon changes their, um, their third-party reseller platform for some reason? Oops, right? That's a problem. So those are the kinds of the hidden risks we want to look for. And we've talked ad nauseum about the employee side. So that, that's the Switzerland structure. We also take a look at recurring revenue. How, what percent of your total revenue is recurring? And there's a difference between recurring and reoccurring, right, with, a, with an O. The reoccurring is great. We can count on it, but we don't really know when it's going to happen. My, the example I like to share is me with my interior decorator. She thinks, okay, Lori's going to spend 5000 with me every year. She doesn't know when. She doesn't know on, on what. Right? She doesn't know for sure it's going to happen, as opposed to Netflix. Netflix has my credit card. They, they are charging me in and, you know, every month in and out until I cancel. So a, a contract relationship we can count on, and we can bank that revenue as recurring. So is it, as a percent of total, more than 15%, more than 20%? You know, how healthy is that? We have to also look at churn. So it's customer acquisition. It's retention. All those metrics go into uh, recurring revenue. We take a look at that. Uh, we also take a look at customer satisfaction. If you're measuring it, that's great. If we have objective measures like a net promoter score, sometimes with Yelp or Google, you know, there can be Google reviews and that's great if you don't have any other metrics, but we want to know, have there been complaints? You know, what's, what's the referability? How high is your referral factor? because that's also going to help um, us understand your customer acquisition cost um, from an organic standpoint. Or if you're spending on the marketing side, you know, what are the, what are your marketing dollars for every $1 you've invested? What's, what's the ROI on the other side? We'll take a look at that. Um, we're also going to take a look at the things we talked about earlier with the hub and spoke challenge. The more that an owner is involved, this is kind of the, the, the teeter totter on these two factors. The, the scoring that I have is in a zero to 100 point scale on each of these eight dimensions. And it gives an overall. And we also baseline you versus your peer based on your NICS code. And so that's an assessment that I'll offer to the audience if they want to follow up with me and, and do this assessment. It's numeric, it's, quanti it's quantitative in nature, which I really like because we can talk about where they are now in the red zone, the yellow zone or the green zone. It's, it's very clear. And then we can also do scenario planning. If you're able to improve on some of these dimensions, what will that inherently do to improve your business value? And if you're valued at a million right now and you could be valued at two, that's another million dollars you could be leaving on the table. Why wouldn't we try to work on that? So I get it that, um, you know, there's all these things that go into there. Are there any things that I mean, there's a lot of times there's these myths about certain professions or or certain fields that 
uh, or that just exists in the industry. Like uh, a lot of people think that if you're a sole operator, it's just not sellable. Or if you're a, I don't know, in certain professions, uh, it's almost not like a lot of people think that uh, if you're in certain professions, you just can't sell your business. Is there any out there like well-known myths out there around what you do that just kind of bug you? You wish you could debunk right now? <laughs> well, one myth I think is I'll do it myself. And I think that that's noble, but let's face it, you're already not taking a vacation. So why would you add another full-time job to your plate where you have no experience? And this is your one shot, right? So I think that's probably the biggest is uh, I'll do it myself. The other one is I don't have time to work with anyone. So it's not I'm going to do it myself because they're already acknowledging they don't have time, but they don't have time to work on getting their business ready for a transition, which I think is an extreme fallacy because what we're going to do to get your business ready for a future transition is good economic stuff. It's stuff you should be doing anyway. So if you're basically then saying, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to work on the things that are going to make my business more valuable. It just makes you wonder, well, what are you doing then? It's, uh, I've noticed that if you look at some of these guys, when they, when they call, when they finally call somebody like myself or, you know, even a business broker, a lot of times their last three years have been declining. They've already kind of stepped out a little bit, kind of they're either burnout or they're checking out a little bit before they realize that they, you know, before it hits them that I probably should sell this. And that's the exact opposite of really what should happen. Right. Um, you know, if you really want to maximize your value of your exit, you kind of got to do it when you're got momentum, things are growing. There's a good story to tell as to what the future looks like, as opposed to telling a story. Well, I kind of got burned out and for the last three years. I haven't done much. <laughs> and, you know, we're half what we used to be. I, I get those calls and I was like, well, you know, it's you're not ba I'm not going to base your performance or your your evaluation or valuation on, you know, what you did five years ago. Is that, you know, they, they have this, like, if you coulda, woulda, shouldas, they want to sell their business on coulda, woulda, shoulda. And uh, it just doesn't work that way. It's uh, you, We look at the last three years, we average it out. Uh, I Like you, I, I it's okay if COVID hits you, we go back a year or something to kind of show me a, a truer picture of where it will stabilize that. But, uh, you know, if you're starting to get checked out, uh, if you're starting to get checked out or you're starting to uh, to transition, it's, I think it's time to, to reach out and get that help to get the, the person like yourself where somebody can give you some, you know, fresh insights, some fresh tasks to get things done and kind of drive you across that finish line. If you really want, you know, to to maximize, you know, all those years you put in. Um, I've seen business owners where, you know, there's and this happens a lot. They, they run their business for 25, 30 years. Um, they don't know what to do with it next. So one day they decided to shut the doors and leave. Um, there's a local local business here where I was like, one day it was there and the next day it's gone. I found out, I was like, what happened to that? You know, it was a, it was a pretty good sized manufacturing company. And the owner said, well, they said the owner retired and moved, you know, moved back to England. That's where he's born and, you know, raised. And uh, he just, that's where he wants to retire. And I was like, he didn't sell it or anything like, no, one day you come in and said he's done and laid everybody off and left. This company was doing probably eight to $10 million a year revenue wow. wise. And I, I talked to one of their managers who was shocked because they were fairly profitable, about 18% margins 
And I'm like, that was a fairly sellable business, even even in a short term. Yeah. But, you know, some owners just they don't see, you know, the process, or they try it once, and then you know the, the buyer backs out, and they just don't they don't think that's sellable. And I would say if you're doing more than a million dollars in a year in revenue, your business is absolutely sellable to somebody. Um, you know, it is. Yeah, it is. I think that you have to have patience with the process. Even if everything goes smoothly, it can still take up to a year. Yeah. So it just, it's not an overnight thing and we have to prepare for it. There's the contingency planning. What happens if you can't run, right? If, if you're sick, there's that. And that's, that's good business to be prepared there. This is more of a long-term view that we have to recognize 100% of business owners are going to leave their company one day. It's a sad truth. We have to acknowledge we're human and uh, boots on or boots off. You're leaving. So what are you going to do? And it doesn't make sense to wait till the very, very end to answer that question. You know, it's interesting as I contacted, I thought I was, I thought I was, had a brilliant idea and turns out you just, it's just too, too problematic to do. Uh, I set up a small team here in my market and, um, with some and called a bunch of estate planning attorneys and, and told them what I was up to. And then one of them was a business attorney. He's like, you just really can't do that because most of these guys aren't set up for it. And the plan was, is if somebody passes and they own a business, I had a temporary team that could swoop, swoop in, manage it until, you know, the probate happened until, you know, basically keep it from sinking. I seen two really good businesses in this market that one of them was an electrical company. Uh, they had probably 10 or 12 trucks, a, a facility, electrician, you know, commercial and, and residential electricians. And the owner passed away and the wife didn't know what anything to do with it. So she just eventually shut the door and auctioned off all the equipment. And if somebody would have stepped in and just managed that for a little while, they could have sold that or done something with it. Problem is, is their operation agreements not set up correctly and a bunch of other stuff. There's no way to hand that over. Right. Um, you know, that, that happened with two that I, I can think of right now where uh, owner passes and the wife is not in the management agreement, not in the operational agreement. There's no she has no signing authority on anything and nobody else in the company does either. So, you know. The thing, you no, know, basically nobody can sign a check there, um, so it can go down pretty hill, downhill pretty quickly if you, uh, you know, don't act. Uh, there's ways around that. The attorney said they could step in and do some stuff, but you know, one of the things I would say, if you're a business owner out there and and, and uh, you're operating your business, your operational agreement, even mine, uh, my wife is a successor manager uh, of the operation signing authority if I'm not around. Even if she has nothing to do with the business, if I get hit by a bus, she can sign checks and, and hire a, a CEO, right? So uh, there's that, that. That's one of the flaws I think a lot of people put in their operating agreements is they don't have somebody named if something happens to them that can step up and, you know, and I even put per stir, I don't know if it'll stand, but mine says wife, well, it says per stirpes, which means per bloodline. So anybody in my bloodline can step up and, and manage that in the event that I'm gone. But uh, hopefully that'll stand. I should ask the attorney. I just, <laughs> I put it in there after I, he, he did it. And, you know, I used to be an in insurance and you put that in insurance all the time. So uh, I put it in there. But uh, what's the biggest What's the biggest area you're seeing right now? I, I see a lot of uh, what we refer to them as baby boomers or whatever, that there's a lot of business owners out now, out there right now that are still operating. They're within a few years of needing to retire. What is that first like, kind of, when does it hit them? Like, what's the aha moment where they realize, oh, I probably should talk to somebody? Are they, are they really waiting? I've got the gut feeling they're waiting until something 
catastrophic happens. They get a health diagnosis or, you know, something happens in their life and they, they have a wake up call. Uh, yeah, I we I did a webinar recently. We had over 100 attendees. And I was really pleased afterwards that a number of people reached out and said, I watched the webinar. This was really thought provoking. I would say age range of these people, I'm seeing a range of in their 50s. And then some of them are in their late 50s and kind of that mindset towards, um, you know, in the US, we have this age 62 framework from the baby boomer generation and, <laughs> and social security. And so a lot of times people are age-based in their decision-making. When I turn X, that's when I'm retired. For other people, it's life phase, you know, life stage. Um, so it doesn't matter what age you are. It's just what you want to do next. And I think that it's an acknowledgement. Look, we all, no matter what we plan for, if we have a plan for what we want to do next, we are inherently going to be happier with our choices. We're going to participate in the process. And by doing so, that is going to create more value. So it's kind of like this concept in psychology of cognitive dissonance. If you inherently disagree with something, but you are physically doing it, the act of doing it actually changes, helps to change the mindset right? So if we think about, well, I'm negative about this, I'm, I'm more neutral about it, I don't know how I feel about it, I don't have any game plan. How's that going to feel? It's going to feel like a super disconnect. And so of course, we're not going to go work on it. That might be one of the root mindset challenges that we're facing is we don't know what we want to do next. That's one of the main reasons we don't want to admit it, but that's true of why we're not working on it in the first place. Or it's because our identity challenges. We don't know who we are if we're not working in this business. My name is on the door. It's a family or I was the founder, right? All those things. So I think for people to be more feeling more successful and positive about a transition in their future, um, the more open-minded they are to start taking some action. I, I also start to see a lightness. Like I saw it yesterday when I was on the, I was on a call, I did an assessment with someone and um the personal situations were have not been great over the last few years. The business situation has not been great um, for the last few years. That's taken a toll on him. And he was really authentic and honest about how he was feeling. And it felt a little bit like a therapy session in a good way that we he could feel a little bit of just some kind of weight coming off his shoulders to even admit this out loud that it's been a concern for him. And I, that made me feel good. You know, that's part of the reason why I do this. And it's, it's, I think, um, a lot of, a lot of, I get a lot of satisfaction from working with entrepreneurs. I have my whole career. I, I appreciate the risks that they've taken. And I can also appreciate this is not easy. You haven't built your business on your own. So why would you go through a transition or a transaction on your own? And I want to be their partner. I want to be their trusted advisor to help them achieve their, their goals in this next phase. You know, you brought that up that, uh, our identity is tied to this. And I catch myself that I actually, uh, I have a friend who's a performance coach and he smacks me, you know, verbally all the time for saying that, like, oh, he said, well, no, he'll, he'll hear me say, well, I'm a podcaster. Like, no, you have a podcast, you know, or I'm an entrepreneur. Like, no, you have you own some businesses. Right. And he just you tell me, like, you need to quit tying your identity to what you do because it's not right. Uh, he's also very, uh, we call it um What's the word I'm like? Not new age, but you know, not he's not hippies. The guy's a retired marine. Um, but there's a word I'm looking for. Like you know, you know, 
I, I, you don't have thoughts. I mean, you, you're not your thoughts. You have thoughts like they just things that pass through your head kind of guy. So, uh, but a lot of us do that as entrepreneurs. We really tie our sense of identity to who we, you know, what we do, what we spend our time doing and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd rather say I'm a father and a husband than say, you know, I'm a real estate investor and, and business owner, but I catch myself tying my identity to it. So when, when, a, when somebody's run their business for, in some cases, third generation, fourth generation, you just said one was what, sixth or seventh generation? I talked to nine and 10. Yeah. Nine and 10. I mean, that's just, that's amazing to me. I, I think it's beautiful. I really do. Uh, and, you know, and I get it if you're the Hershey family, right. Or, or, right. or I don't know what, you know, or one of those. Right. Uh, but to a lot of the times you're talking about like the one I was telling you was third generation. It was concrete. Right. Um, you know, that identity is still tied to that, that family identity is tied to that brand and stuff. When you sit down with a person and start talking about succession planning and transitioning out of the business, how do you break that emotional bond to I am this business? Yeah, it is a good identity question. Am I a business owner? Or do I own a business? So you nailed it on the head with that one. I have a couple of tools that I use. I've talked a lot about the business assessment, the business readiness, the business value. That's one tool. Another tool that I have, which I'll invite the audience to follow up with me if they're interested in it, is on the owner's identity and readiness for a transition. So we call it the personal readiness to exit evaluation. And it'll take you as long as it takes you, but generally 15 minutes. And there's a series of questions that will ask you. And you'll also then get afterwards a written report that shows you things to think about across four different dimensions of personal readiness for change and what we call four drivers towards the, the success factors that might help you in, in that transition. And a lot of times when I go through this with people, um, we go through the report and we realize, oh, wow, there's some homework to do. These are things to work on. And it's not like we're going to work on it overnight. We're going to work on it over time because you might not know the answers to these and that's okay. So that's the whole purpose is to try to bring up to the surface. What are some things that have been on your mind Maybe you've got some options, maybe you don't, that you've thought about. What are some of those things? Let's talk about them, pros and cons. And then we use that alongside the business assessment. Um, it's a great way to kick off a relationship because it really helps me get to know them, what some of their pain points are, what are some of the things they've been struggling to think about. And we use that as a framework for exit planning and strategy planning and transition planning. And with the business, what do we need to work on with you? one-on-one, -on -one, what do we need to work on? And those aren't things we want to surface with your management team, but there might be things with the business transition that we do want to surface with the management team because we need them to go execute. We need them to align on what it is we need to go work on. If we need to create a recurring revenue model, well, you can't do that on your own. How, who are we going to involve in that? And so a lot of times what I'll do is I, I call it strategic exit planning, right? We sort of tie it together where there's the there's the one-on-one -on -one stuff that's private that that's what we'll talk about in the coaching sessions. And then there's the, the pieces of the business that we need to go work on involving your team. Well, let's put a strategic plan in place to make sure that all the oars are in the water moving in the same direction at the same time. Well, I just looked at the time. We're already at 53 minutes. So uh, we do to make, make sure, need to make sure that people know how to reach out to you. So let's make sure we do that. So what's the best way for somebody to, to contact you? 
They can go to meetlauriebarkman.com and reach out to schedule time directly with me. There's a Calendly on that page, and I'll invite them to take the business assessment if they would like to. They would like to take the personal assessment. That's fine also. Or if they want to take both, <laughs> of course, they can take both. Um, but that page will invite you to take the business assessment. I'll get in touch with you for that. And you'll take it. It'll take you about 15 minutes and then we can meet and discuss. And so that's a that's an open invitation if you go to this page. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Lori Barkman on LinkedIn. And also if you want to learn more and go to my website, it's smalldotbig.com, small.big.com. And you guys that are listening right now, those uh, all the URLs and how to contact her will be in the show notes if you're listening to the podcast. And if you're uh, watching the video, it'll be in the show description. And it's on the screen. You're, you're staring at it right now. Uh, at least the uh, LinkedIn uh, link and the meet Lori Barkman. Uh, I want to thank you for being here. Is there any like final thoughts like the if the, your big takeaway, if somebody could take away one, two or three things, you know, in the next couple of minutes? Uh, what would you want to be as your parting shot here? Yeah, I think the main thing is to work on your business and get it ready for a future transition is going to make your business better to run. You know, you'll be happier running it. And um, and that's ultimately what we want is we want you to have a, a successful future exit. But also, you know, don't wait till the end to have feel that success. You should be feeling it all the way through. And so when time is on your side to be generating more value in your business and more options for the future exit for future transition. That's the best scenario. So please don't wait till the very last years of your career to work on this. Awesome. I appreciate having you on the show. Hang out for a few seconds when we complete. And uh, so you and I can chat. Uh, thank you very much. It's been very valuable. I'm sure the listeners will love this. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. All right. That's the show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T. IEPM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.